What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and it's finally my favorite time of year. After 11 months of patiently waiting, spoopy season has returned. October is upon us, and all the folklore we're covering this month has a theme that I think you're going to love, the consumption of human flesh. If there is one thing that humankind collectively hates, it's going to Jared Leto movies. But right after that is the idea that we're going to be eaten. Ask anyone not committed to an insane asylum and they would agree. Jared Leto needs to quit acting. Also, it would suck to be eaten. We hate the idea of being eaten so much that we all decided to not see the movie where Jared Leto eats people. Even more impressive, we took ourselves out of the food chain, so we no longer have to worry about predators like lions, tigers, and bears, at least not in our day-to-day -day lives. But if one looks into the worlds of folklore and literature, you'll see that many of the most memorable and nightmare-inducing villains have something in common. They're all humanoids who have a fondness for man flesh. The witch in Hansel and Gretel, vampires like Dracula, the evil queen who wanted to eat Snow White's heart, and then there's today's subject, the Wendigo. Part 1. What are Wendigos really? The Wendigo is a cannibalistic monster originating from the folklore of North America's indigenous peoples, and it's become a staple of modern-day horror. It's inspired movies like the aptly named Wendigo, starring Dewey from Malcolm in the Middle, and the Guillermo del Toro-produced Antlers. TV shows like Supernatural and Grimm have both dedicated episodes to the monster. Crypt TV's loved and feared Mordeo looks to me like it was inspired by the Wendigo, and it's even made its way into video games. Fallout 76 Six is set in post-apocalyptic Appalachia, where the forests are haunted by Wendigos, the feeders in Dead Space were inspired by the creature, and I just found out they're the main antagonists in Until Dawn, a horror game about surviving Until Dawn. But while all of these depictions have a kernel of accuracy in them, that kernel being cannibalism, they are a pretty huge departure from the folklore they were based on. Especially the movies. Why so many of them have decided to throw antlers on this thing, I have no idea. Apparently, antlers are scary. You see, the concept of Wendigos comes from a few different indigenous groups in North America, the Plains and Great Lakes natives, as well as the First Nations peoples. These groups, which all belong to the Algonquian language group, were based in and around the East Coast forests of Canada, the Great Plains regions of the United States, and the Great Lakes regions of the US and Canada. The stories they told about the Wendigo were nothing like the ones found in pop culture, which usually portray them as monsters of the week and give them antlers, fangs, and claws, making them some kind of deer-werewolf hybrid. Like I said, they're accurate in that they usually show Wendigos as former humans who've consumed human flesh, but the transformation that cannibals went through in Native American lore wasn't so physically dramatic. In his book, The Manitoas, The Supernatural World of the Ojibwe, native author Basil H. Johnston describes the Wendigo as gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out over its skin, its complexion, the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into its sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, Unclean and suffering from superations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death 
and corruption. I would describe it as a transformation of the soul and of the mind, comparable to being possessed by an evil spirit. It no longer cares for the wants and needs of other people, even its own family and friends. Actually, Johnston also says in his book that the word Wendigo comes from the Anishinaabe words dago, meaning solely for self. The only thing that the Wendigo desires is to eat human flesh and that has no concerns about who may be affected by it satisfying those cravings. But you might be wondering, where do those cravings come from? Are Wendigo's people who spontaneously decide to eat human one day? Was it an infection of some kind? A brain fungus that turned them into zombies? The real answer is actually even darker than that, at least in my opinion. The craving came from starvation. If someone was a shitty hunter, or if it was winter time and animals were harder to come by, they may have resorted to eating their own kin. An 1800s explorer named John Tanner, who was nicknamed White Indian and lived with the Ojibwe and Chippewa tribes for 30 years, described this exact scenario happening to someone from his hunting band. Describing the perpetrator as a rather insignificant person and a poor hunter, Tanner said this individual had eaten his own wife because of hunger and that the Indians had wanted to kill him at the time as being unworthy to live. This brings up another important point that is vital to Wendigo lore. From the moment you took your first bite of human flesh, your fellow tribe members wanted nothing to do with you and I think we can all agree that that's an understandable position to take. If someone were willing to betray their own wife or children and eat them to survive, you can't trust them to look out for anyone else in the tribe. That being said, when you consider the position that some of these people were in, going days if not weeks without eating and freezing their asses off, those are some of the roughest conditions that humans can face. And none of us sitting in our climate-controlled houses with our lumbar-supported chairs can really imagine where our mental health would be if we were thrust into that position. And I'm willing to bet that at least one of you watching this would have been desperate enough to eat your grandma. Statistically, that's just a fact. Sidebar, don't eat your grandma. Grandmas are gamey and all around don't have much nutritional value. I learned that from the original Little Red Riding Hood. There was more behind this social banishment than just the issue of trust though. It was believed that anyone who consumed human flesh would never be able to stop. They would be afflicted with a craving they could never fully satisfy. Now this might be a weird comparison to make, but if you want to see this phenomenon in action, season four of It's Always Sunny explored a very similar concept. Looks like you two have been enjoying my meat. The episode was not based in Wendigo folklore, but when Frank tricks Charlie and Dee into thinking they ate human, they start to lose their minds. And no matter what they try to fill their stomachs with, it's just not as satisfying as the man meat. Granted, we learn later in the episode that the supposed human meat was actually just raccoon and their insatiable hunger was likely the result of tapeworms, but this phenomenon of the hunger was a real concern to Native Americans. There's a super interesting interview with an elder of the Cree tribe where he elaborates on this. I'll link it in the resources section of the description, but here's a direct quote. And when a person came to be in that state, he is no longer an ordinary human. It doesn't bother him how cruel it is. And in time, if he eats again and again, if he eats the meat of the human flesh, it gets numb. It doesn't have any more feeling. And his heart became like ice. There's no sympathy, there's no right, no human richness. Meat is all that counts. So as you can see, the Wendigo has quite a few more layers than big scary monster who eats people. It was a corruption of the soul. Corruption that was born from greed, desperation, or insanity. 
not pouring radioactive waste on a sacred native burial ground like Hollywood has taught us. Sure, stories about the Wendigos were told to scare people, but not for the sole purpose of entertainment. The final goal was not to give someone the heebie-jeebies. They taught lessons and gave warnings that no matter how hungry and desperate you find yourself, even in the dead of winter, you should never resort to eating your own kind. If you do, you'll never be the same again, and either your tribe will abandon you, or you'll be hunted, killed, and burned. Because the only way to truly kill a Wendigo is with fire. Your clothes, your blood, your body, and especially your heart, which was believed to have turned to ice, would be reduced to ash. Another possible moral these stories taught was to conserve. It was the hunter's responsibility to not kill off more animals than necessary because it could put the tribe into a desperate situation where eating humans was the only way to survive. But the misconceptions about Wendigos didn't start with the big screen, my friends. It actually all began with the first short story ever written about them. Authored in 1910 by Algernon Blackwood, whose name you might be interested to learn, was used in Until Dawn, which was set on Mount Blackwood. The story Algernon wrote, though, might be even scarier than the game, though, and I'm gonna share it with ya. So grab yourself a snack that doesn't contain human remains, then sit back, relax, and brace yourself for what's next. After a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I know, that was kind of a dick move. Listen up, mere mortals. You don't have to be haunted by a Wendigo to need emotional and mental support. Life is full of hardships. We all have insecurities that weigh us down. We all have trauma. And the best way to carry these burdens is never obvious. Venting our frustrations gets them out of our head and gives us a whole new perspective for how to think about and handle them which is why I'm such a big fan of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a fantastic service that can connect you with professional and licensed therapists who wanna help you become a better problem solver. All you have to do is answer a few questions about yourself and in less than 48 hours, BetterHelp can find you a therapist that fits you best from their extensive network of board certified providers. It's also easier than ever to speak to your therapist. You can do phone calls, video calls, or even direct message. Whatever method you are most comfortable with. Whether you need to offload some stress, emotionally heal, help with anxiety and depression, or recover from trauma, therapy can get you where you want to go. And I can get you a discount. Just go to betterhelp.com slash John Solo to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash John Solo. Part 2. The Algernon Blackwood Story. This story follows a hunting party that ventures out into the wilderness of Canada in search of moose after a number of locals return from their own hunting expeditions, claiming that the usual hunting grounds were surprisingly devoid of any wildlife. Spoiler alert, this hunting party's journey into the wild would prove to be just as fruitless as everyone else's, but instead of meat, at least one of them would make it back with a hell of a story. So the group is made up of four individuals, Dr. Cathcart, his nephew Simpson, and their two guides, Hank Davis and Joseph DeFago, who had been friends for decades. They also had an indigenous friend with them. His name was Punk, and he was responsible for cooking and looking after the camp while the main group was out in search of prey. After spending a whole day in the wildlands without finding so much as a single moose track, the four men consider exploring the area on the other side of the lake they set up camp by but one of them, Joe DeFago, is initially reluctant to this idea. He doesn't explain why, but it's obvious to the three other men that his whole demeanor changed after the idea was brought up. 
Regardless, he insists that he's not scared of anything in those damned woods and tells the two less experienced men, Doc and Simpson, to get some rest so they're ready for tomorrow's journey. Moving on ahead to the next morning, the hunters have already left camp by 8 a.m. Hank and Doc are following the trail that leads west, while Defago and Simpson set out in a canoe headed east and it's the second pair that we're following. As they traverse the 50 or so miles across the lake, we learn that this is Simpson's first ever hunting trip and that he knows concerningly little about getting by in the wilderness. So he is completely reliant on Defago for navigating, hunting, and surviving. It's not a great position to be in, but the veteran hunter Defago is an excellent guide. He educates Simpson as much as he can along the way, and when they hit their destination, he makes sure to explain how to get back to camp just in case they get separated. So after spending yet another day unsuccessfully trying to find some moosies, the two set up their camp and have a pretty enjoyable night eating their rations, smoking tobacco, and singing ballads around the fire. When suddenly, in the middle of all this revelry, Defago's voice drops down to barely more than a whisper, which on its own was enough to make Simpson freeze with fear. Then Defago stood up, smelled the air, and pointed in the direction of their canoe. Simpson watches as Defago's eyes widen and the color leaves his face. He whispers to his guide, hey, is something wrong? But once again, Defago denies his fear of the wild and instead blames the song they were singing for bringing up bad memories. As you would imagine, Defago denying his obvious moment of panic made the inexperienced Simpson even more paranoid. What could be out here that made the veteran outdoorsman so scared? Was it hostile natives, wild animals, a forest fire on the horizon? But since he wasn't going to get an answer, Simpson chalked up the expression of terror and paleness to a trick of the firelight and quietly laughed to himself <laughs> about the funny story he'd have to tell when he got home. What Simpson didn't realize is that his laughter was a sign that fear was still lurking in the recesses of his soul, that it was merely a trick that the conventional man played on himself to convince himself that his fears were imagined. And just when Simpson started to settle down, Defago asked him, You haven't smelled anything unusual, have you? And Simpson said no. Then when he returned the same question, Defago denied it, once again blaming the song for getting him all riled up. After that bit of awkwardness, the two men went to sleep in their tent, making sure they stayed close together, both for warmth and for safety. It was only a few hours later when Simpson was roused awake. He could hear the sound of the wind, the lake's waves, and Defago crying to himself with a blanket pressed against his mouth to mask the sounds. Simpson reaches out for Defago to check on him, but no amount of shaking or talking is getting a response. Then he looks towards the tent's opening and notices something strange. Defago's feet were hanging outside in the freezing cold as if something had tried to pull him out. Simpson is getting antsy, but his guide is still ignoring or can't hear his pleading for answers. So the inexperienced college boy has no choice but to bundle himself up and try to go back to sleep. Try is the operative word here though. Between the weirdness around the campfire and waking up to Defago, the man who was supposed to be protecting him, bawling his eyes out in the middle of the night, Simpson couldn't make himself relax, and the events of the following morning only made his mental state worse. Because a few hours later, he was jolted awake by a violent movement. Defago was now physically shaking and huddled against Simpson for protection, trying to get away from the tent's opening as if something or someone was waiting for him just outside. 
It was at this moment that Simpson heard a voice unlike any he had heard before. It was both rough and demanding, but also somewhat sweet, and it cried out three distinct notes. Before Simpson can even process what he heard, Defago jumps to his feet and bolts out of the tent as if he has no control over his body. And then he cries out, Oh, my feet of fire, my burning feet of fire. Oh, what great height and fiery speed. And suddenly, Defago was gone, along with the noise. All that remained was that strange smell he must have been talking about the night before. Simpson tried to chase after his guide, but he was wildly unprepared and knew he'd have to gear up and eat some breakfast if he was going to do this right. So after devouring some bacon, which did clear up his mind a bit, he grabbed his rifle and began following the footprints of the man he prayed was still alive. And curiously, he saw there were animal tracks going in the same direction. Which animal they belonged to, he had no idea. Even stranger, a few miles into the journey, Simpson noticed that Defago's tracks were changing. Their stride was getting longer, growing to an inhuman length of 18 feet apart, and the prints became larger and rounder, as if Defago's feet were transforming. But suddenly, the footprints stopped and the trail went cold. Simpson searched a hundred yards in every direction and called out for Defago until his voice got hoarse. Then, out of nowhere, he heard Defago's voice calling out from above him, screaming about his fiery feet. Simpson continued his search for hours without luck, and as the sun began to set, he had no choice but to venture back to camp, alone and more paranoid than ever. In his mind, every cracking twig was the mysterious creature returning to attack him. Every gust of wind sounded like whispers coming from behind the trees. The whole journey back, he felt he was being watched, but he made it back to his camp just in time to get a fire going before the sun completely set. And he stayed by that fire all night, making sure it never came close to going out and never taking his rifle out of his hands. When the sun rose the next morning, he quickly set out for his home base, the campsite where the four hunters had left their best friend, Punk. Did I say best friend? There's nothing in this story to imply they're best friends. In fact, they're kind of a dick to the guy. Remembering Defago's guiding words for how to find their canoe and that their camp was due west, he paddled his way across the lake until the sun had once again set, leaving him in complete darkness, floating in the middle of the water. Lucky for Simpson, his uncle and his uncle's guide Hank had already returned and started a fire, and it was this little bit of flame miles away that became his North Star and led him to safety at least for now. Simpson's canoe hit the shoreline at about midnight and his cries for help woke up the rest of the hunting party with a start. They helped him get to his feet and then to the fire and that's when he filled them in about the past two days terrifying events. As you might expect, the other hunters were skeptical about his story and assumed that the intensity of the vast and lonely wilderness was affecting his mind but they all agreed to try and track down Defago. First and foremost though, Simpson needed some sleep, so his uncle injected him with some morphine and the young lad spent the next six hours sleeping like a drugged up baby. When Simpson wakes up, he leads his uncle and their other guide, Hank, across the lake back to he and Defago's camp which looked to be untouched since the last time he was there. Then they spent the entire day searching for Defago unsuccessfully, and they agreed to spend one more day searching before having to accept that their companion was gone for good. It's when the guys are resting at their campfire that Hank tells them about the Wendigo, 
but you'll notice his description hardly resembles the creature from Native American lore. Instead of the condition being caused by cannibalism, he says, the Wendigo is the call of the wild personified. The voice, they say, resembles all of the minor sounds of the bush wind, falling water, cries of the animals, and so forth. And once the victim hears that, he's off for good, of course. His most vulnerable points, moreover, are said to be the feet and the eyes. The feet for the lust of wandering, and the eyes for the lust of beauty. The poor beggar goes at such a dreadful speed that he bleeds beneath the eyes, and his feet burn till they drop off, and new ones form exactly like its own. And those paying attention will recall the transformation of Defago's footprints that Simpson had been tracking a few days before. After Hank explains all this, the doctor and his nephew are as silent as ever, pondering how long they have until the Wendigo sets its sight on them. Then, without any warning whatsoever, Hank stands up and screams as loud as he can. And as his hunting partners stared at him wide-eyed and mouths agape, another voice cried out from above. It was Defago, once again screaming those horrible words about his feet being on fire. Next came the sound of a heavy object falling through the trees and landing with a thud. Then they heard the sound of footsteps crunching in the snow. And just beyond the light of the campfire, a shadowy figure emerged, moving like it was controlled by wires. In an instant, the figure rushed towards Simpson like it was about to pounce on him. But instead, what Simpson saw was the face of Joe DeFago closing in on him. Here I am, Boss Simpson. I heard someone calling me. But right away, the group could tell that while this thing may have looked like Joe, it wasn't really him. The skin on his face appeared to be loose and hanging, and they could smell the scent of that putrid odor that Simpson must have gotten whiffs of the few days before. It was almost like someone, something, was wearing Defago's face as a mask, but they were all too afraid to see what was underneath. Hank, who was clearly rattled at the sight of his friend in this state, lay down in the tent at the doctor's suggestion but he continued watching their visitor from a distance. And when this other Joe sat down, Hank cried out, Oh God, look at his feet. In the span of a few seconds, Simpson looked over and saw two round black masses where Joe's moccasins should have been. But before his eyes could really focus, Joe was tackled by the doctor who tried to cover his legs up with a blanket. Then Joe, whose face had contorted into something truly monstrous says, now you've seen it too. You've seen my fiery burning feet. Hank tries to run after him, but the doctor tackles him to the ground, knowing that he would suffer the same fate as Joe if he were to step into the shadows. Less than a dozen seconds later, they hear the cries of their former guide off in the distance as it rose above their heads and died away. And suddenly, the world returned to normal. There was no stench and no sound apart from the crackle and smoke of the campfire, which Dr. Cathcart kept burning all night while Simpson and Hank slept in the tent to regain their sanity. When the sun rose the next morning, the group headed back toward their camp, all handling the situation a bit differently. Hank, who's described as the most primitive of them, recovered the quickest, but he still didn't know what to make of what he saw. The doctor, who was the most civilized, never really did recover and had a hard time reconciling the night's events with what he thought he knew about the world. 
Then there was Simpson, who may have experienced the most trauma, but as the youngest and most spiritual of them, was also the most open-minded to the possibilities. He considered that whatever that thing was that possessed Joe must have been prehistoric, an evil presence that haunted the primeval world and somehow survived the advances of humanity. But this story isn't over yet, because after the three men returned to their camp, there was no sign of punk. Instead, laying there by the ashes of their campfire was Defago, or at least what was left of him. The poor man's mind had clearly been broken. He couldn't remember anything from the past few days or his life prior. On his face was no expression of any kind whatever, fear, welcome, or recognition. He did not seem to know who it was that embraced him or who it was that fed, warmed, and spoke to him the words of comfort and relief. Forlorn and broken beyond all reach of human aid, the something that had constituted him individual had vanished forever. Barely coherent and speaking like an idiot child, author's words, not mine, Defago continued to complain about his burning feet, but this time his complaints made sense because his feet were severely frostbitten. His eyes also appeared to have recently bled. The group had absolutely no idea how their friend had made it back to camp before them either, considering he had no canoe and would had to have traveled over a hundred miles around the lake on his feet. But they were relieved to see him again, even in this damaged state. But they still had no idea where Punk had gone. Well, it turns out that while he was tending the camp, waiting for the hunting party to return, he spotted Defago stumbling toward him. And as Punk approached to help, he caught a whiff of the same scent that had pervaded Joe since their trip began. The native knew right away what the scent was and immediately turned around to go home, completing this three-day journey that only someone with indigenous blood running through their veins could have. The terror of his entire race is what drove him. He knew what it all meant. Joe DeFago had seen the Wendigo. And I'm sad to report that only a few weeks after this incident, without a mind or soul left to inhabit his body, Joe DeFago passed away. Part 3. Based on a True Story So I've thrown a lot of info at you today, but I want to answer one more question that's no doubt lingering in the back of some people's minds. Are Wendigos real? And the answer is... Kind of, but I want to emphasize that they definitely didn't exist in the form that movies, shows, books, or video games have shown them. It's not like someone ate human flesh and then turned into a nine foot tall monster with antlers and claws. To reiterate, the transformation took place within, and any physical abnormalities were usually the result of malnourishment which was often what led to the consumption of human flesh in the first place. Not every time, there were some psychos out there like Swift Runner, who was the first man to be legally hanged in Alberta, Canada after authorities found out that he ate his wife and children, but in most scenarios, the perpetrators were in pretty bad health. Gray skin, gaunt, emaciated faces, the lingering smell of rotting meat. This is what happened to a starving person who resorted to eating people. And the sheer amount of desperation they felt, as well as the horror at their own actions, may have been what broke their minds, not evil spirits. But this steadfast belief in Wendigos, both by Native Americans and the Europeans who lived among them and claimed to have seen these creatures firsthand, led to the creation of the medical term Wendigo psychosis, which the American Psychological Association officially recognizes. Described as a severe culture-bound syndrome occurring among Northern Algonquin Indians living in Canada and the Northeastern United States. The syndrome is characterized 
characterized by delusions of becoming possessed by a flesh-eating monster, the Wendigo, and is manifested in symptoms including depression, violence, a compulsive desire for human flesh, and sometimes actual cannibalism. Now chances are there really were people who lost their mind or soul for one reason or another and resorted to cannibalism as a way to survive, and cases like this led to the birth of the Wendigo legend. But it wouldn't surprise me if there were desperate individuals who had heard these stories and felt their mental states declining into madness who may have believed they were becoming Wendigos and started to act out the part creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, the belief in Wendigos may have caused the creation of more Wendigos. Now, I don't want that interpretation to be misconstrued as me delegitimizing Native American beliefs. In the words of Socrates, I only know that I know nothing. But in the modern world, where we have a much more advanced understanding of mental health, it seems like that could have been what happened. But I would love to hear your thoughts on this, mere mortals. Do you think that Wendigos were really the result of souls possessed by evil spirits? Or were they just desperate people who had lost their grasp on reality and morality? Let me know in a comment or by hitting me up on the socials. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handles John Solo or Messed Up Origins. Before you take off though, I would greatly appreciate if you could sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods because the show could really use your support right now. Besides, you don't want to miss any of the spoopy content we have planned for this month. It's going to get real weird. I'll speak with you again next week with the messed up origins of vampires. That's right, the day has finally come. Until then, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.